Hi, this is Frank Menzer. Whether you play Moldvay or My Edition or any other basic D&D, tune in next for Save or Die Basic D&D. So your problem is that Breath Weapon isn't save or die. Not a problem with a small room filled with golds and jewels and a red dragon. <laughs> yes. It should be <laughs> save or die after How about that. a dragon shouldn't be in a small room? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. And ta-da, we have our clip for me to put in the front of the show. <laughs> <laughs> it's 2015. Save or Die podcast, episode number 103. Woohoo! Ooh! And for the new year, I believe I am still DM Mike. With me is the gamer who is even prettier than Elena, drawn by Larry Elmore, is DM Liz. I beg to differ, but I'll take the confident, or the compliment. (laughs) (laughs) I think Elena has better language skills than I do, too. And the gentleman who, if you can convince him to say his name backwards, will return him to his home dimension, DM Jim. Oh, Midge Repmall. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I hate it when that happens. <laughs> Mixelplick. Oh, I, 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 I vote for prettier than Alina, so you're outvoted, Liz. So there. Mm. Two for one. We win. And you don't break all ties. Well, this episode, we plan to talk about my favorite subject, skill systems in D&D, both the official and house rules, or semi-official, depending on how many box sets you, you believe in. And by talk about, you mean generally disparage and bang on for an entire hour. <laughs> Probably. Well, I'm sure that's what Mike intends to do. <laughs> Although... I do have – there is actually a skill system I like, but I'll leave it up to – leave it till we get there. Well, I'm just, I was just looking at the show notes, and I'm like, it's a shame I don't have, like, the other opinion so that I could, you know, do counterpoint and provide <laughs> a, an entertaining podcast dynamic. But I, you and I are sitting on the same side of the football field. It's just which, which row of bleachers we're both in. Maybe we should have invited Crispy and see if he could come on and and play the devil's advocate for the sake of argument, right, Liz? (laughs) Well, sure. (laughs) Gotta have arguments. (laughs) That's right. But that's what we have reader emails for, so. Exactly. And they can tell us how wrong we are. Well, I will do my best to say some things on behalf of skills. I will, too. Just, you know, as a historian, I, I have to learn how to do both arguments, even if I don't agree with them. 
that's the part I'm actually interested in is, you know, the dynamic of where they came from and how they evolved, the historical context. That's awesome to talk about. Yeah. But first... What did we do with David this week? Who cares? Ow! What have we been doing since episode 102? Jim. Oh, I just gamed last night. Um, All right. I haven't been getting in a lot of gaming because of writing assignments, but when you write things that have to be playtested, you get to game. So that's what we did. And uh, last night's discovery was that perhaps a 15-foot-tall, 75-hit-point aggro bot with saw blades for arms is a little bit of overkill in the level zero funnel adventure. (laughs) <laughs> I might I might have overdone it just a little bit even for my players. Although uh my player Kevin, uh with a sentient plant, uh who shouldn't even be able to make an AI recognition roll, got his uh hands on a com badge and uh crit success the role and mastered the robot anyway. So that's my group, the mutant murder hobos. They kick ass no matter what I do to them. <laughs> so I dig it they didn't decide to run away, run away. Oh, oh, almost all of them ran away. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, good for them. Good for them. Oh, uh, school skills. And we have a new member of the Mutant Murder Hobos that I got to hold in my lap, little three-month-old Felix. Two of my players have created a new character. Aw. And I got to <laughs> spend a little time with Felix and tell him in eight or nine years when he stops sw- trying to swallow the dice, he can sit at the table and play too. <laughs> I can tell him yeah. stories about how his mom used to roll dice off his head in vitro. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. luck. I hardly ever swallow dice anymore. <laughs> so we're all very proud of you for that. Yeah, those those old yellow four-siders were the worst. You know, sharp edges. Anyway. All righty then. Well, how about you guys? Well, I'll go to me next since Liz is always tired of me calling on her first. <laughs> yeah, ah. You just want me to do all the work so you don't have to say anything later. I yeah, exactly what Liz said. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, busted. <laughs> Although for those who keep complaining we never have classic D&D to talk about, we ha- I was involved in not one, not two, but three classic D&D games in December. Huh, you're all classiced up. Yeah, two of them in T-Man's game via Skype, and one I ran myself using uh, kind of a bastardized Holmes Moldvay for Holmesvay. Uh, some, some friends of mine, including Holmesvay, that's awesome. our DM <laughs> and the infamous Mead. Oh, so you, D- you got the DM chasing Mead? Yep. yep. <laughs> <laughs> and, and no skills to bother them with in Holmes nope. Moldvay. That's a Oop. shame. Well, except for the thief things, thief skills. And she was playing a thief, only she got murdered in the in the bandit's stronghold dining room. I but, think she deliberately courted death. Yeah, I mean, she walks out of the kitchen after sneaking down the, the um, chimney, opens the door, and there's like three bandits sitting at a table, you know, chewing on some bread. And they all just kind of stare. And then she immediately lunges and stabs one of them. And the other two kill her. But, oh well. She went out with a bang, though. So, so she, she kind of tried to f- stab him in the front. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, just like, a, can a I backstab them? To get extra damage no. for a front stab. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're all looking at you. <laughs> and Chase's uh, character, who was playing a cleric, came up with the brilliant idea of 
they couldn't figure out how to get the bandit's front door open because it was a heavy door with with lock. Right. So he got a couple of horses that were in the stables, put a rope around the horses and the door, and just whipped the horses until they just yanked the door open off its hinges and dragged it off into the woods. So there was certainly some ingenuity here. Man, what is it with that group and doors? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Doors are evil. Well, I think Chase was afraid I might do to him, you know, the door thing that he did to us. So he he, he wasn't going to play around with that door. But anyway, and in Teeman's game, Liz is playing an elf and I'm playing a dwarf. And we've been wandering around killing orcs and and goblins and dealing with undead. Which reminds me, Liz, I kept wanting to remember to ask Teeman about the leaden skeletons. <laughs> and did he get them from me, from my uh, book, or did he come up with them somewhere else on his own? Because in my supplement, uh, Guide to the Realms of Aden, my campaign world that's on Dragon's Foot that I did back in 2002 or something, leaden skeletons were a monster that I introduced as new for my campaign. So I need to ask him. And Timon, if you're listening to this, please let me know next time we game. Well, you're a writer. I'm a writer. You don't want to know what haunts me and keeps me up at night is the thought that I read something somebody wrote five or six years ago and don't remember I read it and then have it and think it's my own idea and stick it in something. That's really what I want to know because if it's like, say, Timon got it from, say, a gazetteer or something, which – I may not have ever read, but I may have heard someone talking about it. I'd kind of want to know to make sure I'm not poaching. So anyway, that's pretty much the gaming we've done. Liz, anything you want to add in? Well, I can't think of anything. Um, I do know the game that you ran was the second time that our friends Kyle and Randall had ever gamed before. and Well, well Kyle had gamed yeah, before. Yeah, Randall. It Randall was Randall's was second totally game. totally new. And as a matter of fact, Randall's first game, Mike ran a few months back, and they actually asked if they could come over again and game again, which was pretty cool. So it was nice that Randall enjoyed himself enough that first time that they wanted to come back. And then when everyone wandered off and left my game, Randall was still there willing to plug through. <laughs> oh. See, I love that. Uh, little Felix I was just talking about, his dad, Bobby, uh, joined our group because he started dating Nikki last year, and he came from World of Warcraft. He'd never played a tabletop RPG in his entire life at 29 years old. And, man, he jumped in feet first. You know, week two, he's buying crazy dice. Then he's power gaming. You know, then he's naming his characters like they're going to be in a Broadway play. It's I love <laughs> watching somebody new go through that. Yeah, Definitely. Get some fresh yeah. blood in this hobby. Ah, God knows we need it. <laughs> yeah, we've kept things, you know, pretty simple so far for Randall because he's only been twice and we had pre-gens available each time. Um, so he hasn't had the, the fun of rolling up his own character yet, but we just wanted to get him kind of used to the mechanics of the game, you know, what the various stats are used for, etc., etc. But I had 12 pre-gens, so everybody had a good list of choices. It wasn't, this is your character, shut up and play kind of thing. <laughs> well, raise him up right. It's my mm -hmm. advice. Have him roll two or three characters the first time, so when the first one gets <laughs> crushed, he knows what to do. Yeah, yeah. 
Although they did manage to clear out the bandit stronghold for the most part. There was some stuff upstairs, but everybody except Randall wandered off. I'm sorry. <laughs> mm. Oh, anyway. All right. Well, the only other gaming thing I'll mention on my end is um, some of you may know, listening, I am blind. And as part of that, I am subscribed to a service called Bookshare.org that works through a lot of publication companies to basically offer their books as e-copies that I can download and read through Kurzweil and make MP3s out of it. And every now and then, I'll go and put in a search term like dungeons or dragons to see, you know, are there any new books out? And I actually found a book that um, called Dangerous Games Why is it by Laycock. What the moral panic over role-playing games says about play, religion, and imagined worlds. And I went to go look it up on Amazon, and it's actually not published yet. It's not going to actually be available for sale until early February, but it was already available on Bookshare. So I went to read <laughs> which was kind of cool. Um, I believe he is either a sociologist or a religion study. It's published by the University of California. And while he quotes John Peterson a lot, uh, I have to say there are several points in his history of the 1970s of D&D which were flat wrong. Others, he makes claims but has no uh, endnotes or citations, so I know where he got the thing from. For instance, he mentions Gary Gygax when he was in uh, Hollywood, you know, working on the cartoon show was enjoying a private mansion with a hot tub and a limousine, and it was paying like 10000 a month for. And I've never read that before. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong. It's just I've never heard of that, and he gives no citation, so I can look it up myself, which is annoying. I think about that all the time. I was listening to uh, the Drink, Spin, and Run podcast when they did an episode where they'd gotten their Metamorphosis Alpha Deluxe Hardback and were reviewing it. And... Uh, you mean were, the coffee table book? Yeah, 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 yeah. The, 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 the book that's actually bigger than DCC. Um, and I'm trying to listen to it and enjoy it, and they're just, you know, giving their version of some of the history behind the game, and I couldn't enjoy the podcast because I'm just sitting there going, wrong, wrong, that's wrong, yep, that's not right. And, yeah. I, and I'm like, this must be what it's like for John Peterson to listen to Save or Die. Because I know I do it. <laughs> we, we do it, you know. He'll sit home and listen to episode and go, nope, that's wrong, wrong, wrong. Yeah, although the guy, when he gets to comparative religion and dealing with the uh, the uh, satanic panic outrage of the 1980s, I believe he's on firmer ground. Um, in fact, he mentioned some books that I went and looked up, and I might actually have to read to see what they say about D and D because you know it's all this you know evil satanism, so on and so forth. And I find that hilarious. But um, one thing I did not know about. And you guys may have known, and I just never heard of it. Did you ever hear about the Maine Senator, Colleen Lachowitz? No. Mm -mm. Well, apparently, if back in 2012, she was running for state senate and as a Democrat. And the Republican Party apparently found out she played World of Warcraft and put up a website – that basically talks about her – has screenshots of her character and quotes from within the world of Warcraft. 
and was basically saying, you know, Maine needs a senator who lives in the real world and not this world. God forbid anybody in the Senate could be trained in a hobby that increases your critical thinking. Exactly. (laughs) But ironically, it backfired. She won her term. In fact, she had over $6,000 donated to her campaign by gamers around the country who were (laughs) pissed off. She got the Druid vote. Yeah, I guess so. Um, And the the thing is, the webpage is still up. I'll put it in the show notes for those who are interested, but you can still go to the website and see all the stuff and, and gamer bashing that went on. So, I will be very interested to find out if that website gets taken down shortly after this episode airs. <laughs> well, I'm sure, considering how, what a major standing Save or Die has in the media. <laughs> the Save or Die podcast supports all gaming, regardless of party affiliation. That's right. Exactly. I just want to say that. You just don't want Angelic Doctor yelling at you again. <laughs> see, see, I'm trying to cut it off before it happens, and you're spinning it up. Well, somebody has to. Mike's a troublemaker. That's me. All righty. Well, before we go into Game On, is there any announcements or anything anyone feels should be made? Uh, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> I have well, fruit to declare. Or actually, I guess not Game On. We'll go to uh, emails. I will say, and I will put it in the show notes as well, but I found out that Crown Royal actually allows people to customize Crown Royal bags. Oh, that's... Not cost extra, but yeah. Um, So if you want your dice bag, like Glenn used to say, the official dice bag of the OSR, um, but you can actually have custom designs put on it. I'll put the link there. And it's not cheap, but, you know, if you want a custom Crown Royal bag, it's worth it. Do you get the bottle along with it for that price or just a bag? I didn't notice that. I think... I think, well, that would explain the high price. It's like, there better be some booze involved. Dude, I owe you one, because that Tim, that's Tim Cask's birthday present, sorted. <laughs> yeah. I won't ask what you plan to have custom written on it. <laughs> His name. <laughs> All righty. Well, do we have emails, Liz? Oddly enough, yes. Get down. Save or die. Email hot tub time machine. Come here, you scrumptious little beauty. Here I go once again with the email. Every week I hope that it's from a female. Oh man. Um, we do have a few emails, so we will start off with Leroy Jefferson Starship. Oh my god, that's awesome. That's the best name awesome. ever. Yeah. <clears throat> anyway. Do we email. even have to read his email? Can we just sit and say great name? <laughs> just well, bask just, in the name. Bask in the glory of the name. Leroy Jefferson Starship. Starship. Yeah. Okay. Leroy writes Greetings, Sod Crew. It's DM Leroy here, writing into the show to tell you I enjoy listening to your podcast and think you are doing a great job. Thanks. I've made it through your back catalog now, and I'm up to date on all of your shows. Wow. Quick note about me. As a child of the 80s, I was christened with and cut my teeth on the Menser red and blue box rules. Well, then our review of the Shrine of St. Alina in 
this episode should be something you'd find interesting. <laughs> Anyhow, I was excited to hear you guys start to review the complete B and X series of modules. But it seems <laughs> that it's stalled out on the early X's. I, I've been on this podcast for two years, and we've never done any reviews of the B and X series. I know it's really early on. <laughs> really early on in the show. I mean, Vince was still on board when they were doing that. <laughs> Are there any plans to continue with these reviews? <laughs> you know, a lot of people have been mentioning how they would like us to get back on board with the reviews of the X series. I think we are actually going to have to do that. Well, it's in the future show notes. I can't remember if it's 104 or 105, but I have it listed and posted that we are going to go back to X5, which is Temple of Death, I believe, since we stopped off on X4. That's a good one to start with for me. So Okay. Um, and then we have, in brackets, spoilers removed. So, <laughs> along the same lines, your reviews of the known world, Mistara, Gazetteers, seems to have stopped after the <laughs> she of Karamikos. <laughs> I'd love to hear you continue on about these in the future. How about I that, know. Mike? You got those in the show notes for the future? <laughs> Actually, yeah, I've got two of them. Um I know not all of the hosts are big fans of this campaign world, but there were some quality products in that line that really brought the known world to life, and I think the listeners could benefit from them, even if they are just poaching. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Even even your cat was like, wait a minute, that that, that sentence in email never ended. (laughs) I know. My cat is very upset with this. Keep up the good work and keep sodding on. DM Leroy. Uh, Thanks, DM Leroy. (laughs) Yeah, well, here's part of the problem. You know, there are people, I I know there's a part of the the listener base that enjoys the coverage of new product. And when people send us a free copy of their product, you know, we feel kind of obligated to get it covered, especially if it's like, involved in a Kickstarter or something like that. But we have heard the the emails. We will be covering both the next uh, Gazetteer and X5 in the next few episodes. We promise. Yay! Squeaky wheels do get the grease. (laughs) Yes. Now, you might not like what we have to say about them, but we will cover them. So, thank you for your email, DM Leroy. And once again... Awesome name. (laughs) All right. Our next email is from Kevin Long. And Kevin writes, Hi, guys and Liz. Liz, as I round the corner and finish my last year and get my master's degree, I feel that that you should make a check to ensure that the light at the end of the tunnel is not a freight train coming your way. Oh, wow. I think it is great that there are so many people involved in school. Now we just need to tie in the gaming. That is why my final paper slash book is on game fiction. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah, Kevin, I kind of know what you mean. (laughs) This will be my very final semester. And so, knock on wood, um, it won't be an oncoming train, or if it is, I'll make my decks check and I can jump on board before being flattened. 
Save or die? Yeah. <laughs> I, well, Is this the point where I am allowed to fuss at you for not doing more genre uh, RPG art because I love everything that I see that you do do? Uh, hey, she did a victorious sure, sure. poster. I was I was actually able to tie in some genre art into an assignment last semester. And with any luck, maybe I'll be able to do so again this semester. Yeah. But yeah, it is interesting how many gamers are involved in education. I don't know if I've mentioned it in the past, but if so, I, my apologies to Greg Gillespie. But in early October of this past year, I called in to his uh, university class. He's teaching a class on RPGs, design and, and principles. And they had me call in to basically answer questions from the students, which was kind of cool. Dude, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought it was good. He wanted Liz on there, but her schedule prevented her from showing up. So Yeah, I was taking my color photography class when his class was going on, and I could not get away. Um, we were doing a critique of one of our projects, and attendance was mandatory on those days. But yeah, I, but I had told him at the beginning when he had first approached us about it, it's like, I can't promise that I will be there. Mike will be there, but I can't promise I will be there. As once again, Mike rides in on Liz's coattails. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, back to emails. Back to emails. Our next email is from DM Jack. Hey, Jack. Hey, Jack. Hey, Sodcasters. Been listening to you for the last year and have really enjoyed the shows. It took me a while to catch up, but now I'm looking forward to all the new ones when they come out. All the hints, knowledge, and ideas have made my campaigns much better and a lot more fun for my players. Thank you. I live in Michigan, and I'm going to UConn in November. Ooh. Yes, we are still behind on emails. <laughs> <laughs> it's really cool that Jim is going to be there. I signed up for one of his Mutant Crawl Classic sessions the museum at the end of time. I know it's going to be a great time, but since I've never played that or DCC, a little leniency would be appreciated. <laughs> DM Jack, were you lenient, Jim? Uh, it wasn't that session. It was another session about an hour in the entire table TPK'd. And I'm about, you know, we're a little over an hour into this, into the five, four or five hour session. And I'm like, okay, smoke break. And I came back from a smoke break and I'm like, okay, we're shifting the action to parallel universe 4812, where your characters all survived <laughs> that last encounter. Erase all your damage. So that's pretty lenient, right? Yeah, I think yeah, so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when that happens at Tim Cask at Gary Con, he just goes, all right, we're done. I feel like a taco. I <laughs> <laughs> you start to wonder. Do some DMs do this deliberately so that they have, have a couple of yeah they have a couple of hours break before the next session? It's like yeah, I'm just going to stretch my legs and get myself a margarita and you know. But somehow I think if I did that, I wouldn't have the number of returns that say Tim Cass does because it's still gaming with Tim Cass, right? Ah, <laughs> oh, well, there's that. Yeah. But, uh, but the the session he he said he signed up for they uh, they pulled through most of them. Cool. I mean it was a funnel. So hope you had a great time, Jack. I did my best. <laughs> <laughs> and our next email is from David. He says, "Hi Liz, I just started listening to the Save or Die podcast, 
and was grinning ear to ear when I heard you talk about Corpus Christi and finding the home set at a small hobby shop. It was Leisure Time Hobbies off airline or Staples, if memory serves. I also bought a home set there and lived in Corpus for most of my childhood. Aww. Games People Play was another store that stocked Dragon Magazine. Bought my hardcover AD&D books at JCPenney at Padre Staples Mall. Will that ring a bell? Yes. <laughs> Love your show, and it's especially nice to know a fellow Texan is doing this podcast. David. Like, And yes, you are right. Now that you mention it, Leisure Time Hobbies, that was the place. I would not have remembered that on my own. It's like, that is so cool. <laughs> so as a, as a native Texan, has Mike lived there long enough to be adopted? Well, I'm willing to adopt him. I don't know about other people. You already have. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. I got here when I was 16, 15 or 16. So. Oh, yeah, that's plenty of time. Yeah. You, you, got, you came here before you became a legal adult, so sure. Okay. All right. Well, thanks for the email. <laughs> Any others? Okay. Last one, Joshua DeSanto. Ah, genius loci. Hey, Sodders. This is Joshua over at Genius Loci. Congratulations on the 100 episodes. Thanks. I won't lie. I still haven't listened to all of them. It's okay. But, it's okay. Neither have I. <laughs> but can proudly say I've been listening for at least a quarter of the time. What about an episode dedicated to Thunder Rift? I know Rule Cyclopedia was more of Glenn's thing, but I think as a setting, Thunder Rift gets pushed to the sideline far too often, and a nice shout-out to it would be great. Also, if any of you are interested, I have categorized the free adventures I've produced over at my blog, Genius Loci Games at blogspot.com, if anyone wants. Congratulations again, and here's to 100 more. Joshua. Thanks. Yeah, um, it'll have to wait until the X-Series and, and <laughs> the Gazetteers, I think. Now, I was going to say, personally, I know next to nothing about the Thunder Rift setting. And me me it, either. It's going to take a lot of, you know, reading and stuff for me to get to a point where I would feel comfortable giving any kind of opinion on it. But it is something to think about for the future. Mm. And those X modules aren't going to last forever. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm not way out there not even knowing what Thunder Rift is. <laughs> it was a intro campaign world that was introduced sometime in the 1990s. Ah, as part of one of the box, you know, the classic D and D box sets. Um, gotcha. Yeah, so I honestly couldn't tell you if it was good or bad or whatever. So we will try and visit it, but after we slog through the backlog of other things that everyone wants to hear. <laughs> but thanks for the email, and I will put the um, blog address in the show notes for those who want to look at the free adventure list. Sweet. And that is our emails for the show today. All right. And if you want to email, where would you write? Uh, SaverDivePodcast at gmail.com. Or you can call us at 940-536-3763. Threesod. <laughs> and with that, we will break and then go into Game On. I'm bored. Me too. This 24th level elf barbarian mage assassin is lame! 
Want excitement? I do. Want adventure? Uh, yeah. Then just open up a vein and pray to the Dark Master. Burn some luck and roll a die. Now you're ready to listen to Spellburn. Welcome to Spellburn, a podcast about the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game and old-school adventuring. Join the band and party like it's 1974. Hey, guys. Can I play? Sure. Check us out at Spellburn.com or wherever fine iTunes are served. Oh, cool. I summoned a demon horde. What are you doing? It's game time. I think I play too much. People say it's weird. We should cut back. That's insane. Game, Mrs. Hudson, is on. We're here and we're talking skill systems. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Lame. Okay. Next, we'll hey. be going into... <laughs> all right. All right. I guess we need to talk about them. Let the cartoons begin. <laughs> <laughs> it's been an argument against D&D from the beginning that they don't have skill system, which... My personal opinion has always been that I've always felt that skills kind of counter are counterintuitive to a class-based game. Well, that's an interesting place to start because there are certainly RPGs that are based in a skill set game mechanic. Uh, Call of Cthulhu comes to mind, where your whole mm-hmm. character sheet is the skills you do and don't have and what you can and cannot do. But D&D being the first thing, it was a game, if you're talking back to like, the little brown books that was founded first in uh, miniatures rules, which is where the classes come from. You've got a hero or a wizard, and they can, in very binary fashion, you know, one can use swords, one can use spells. And role-playing from, like, Brownstein and diplomacy. And that's where my objection to heavy-duty skill systems comes in, is because of the granular interference with actual role-play. Yeah. And I think a lot of people have noticed that already, is that the problem with skill system, especially a very detailed one, and yes, this is based more on the player, but it happens. It's easy to get into the mindset of, well, I don't have that skill, ergo, I can't even attempt it. And then it's a, well, what should I do here? Well, I don't have that skill, so I can't leap across a chasm or something. And like. And part of what I enjoy about old school D&D is you can try anything, or you should be able to. Just, you may have a crap chance at it, but, you know, you can try. Well, it's interesting that you phrase that as old school, because one of the things, one of the dimensions that we can talk about this in is uh, the play style dimension. How do you, how do you, how do you enjoy playing a game? I mean, that's my, most of my problems with skill systems uh, center in, I don't enjoy that style of game. But some people do. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Liz? I think, and this is something that I've mentioned to you, you know, privately when we've argued about this over the years, I think that skills can be a valuable tool for gaming 
um, as long as the DM is careful that they don't let the skills take the place of role-playing or, you know, trying out stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I've said before, you know, for my, you know, my own personal experience in gaming, you know, say I am playing a character because of who he or she is, is someone who is very skilled at public speaking. And if I, as the player, am not skilled at public speaking, I can't really adequately role play making a stirring speech. But if I can, you know, well, my character knows how to do that, you know, but I am not capable of, you know, role playing out them doing it, you know, the skill can take the place of my lack that, you know, the, the things that I do not share with that character. Um, I think or, that's an excellent and very valid point. But mm-hmm. I want, but I want a counterpoint that in real life I also cannot cast a lightning bolt from my fingertips. <laughs> but but I, there I, are I... mechanics for the lightning bolt, and so shouldn't you have some kind of a mechanic for the other things that you can't do in real life in case you need them? Yeah, the whole argument um, of my character has a very high intelligence, but I don't. <laughs> yeah, I have an average intelligence, and shouldn't my character be able to solve this puzzle better than I can? It's, it, <laughs> well, it gets I, into the p- argument of player versus character in a way. I, I said that. I think that's a valid concern. I'm not, I'm not poo-pooing the concern. I just wanted to bring up the counterpoint. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's, that's what the episode's about. And then, of course, there's the iconic character class with skills, the thief. It, I wish John Peterson. Uh, why do I always wish John Peterson was on the show? Um, cause, cause, because everyone wishes John Peterson was on the show. John Peterson's cool. <laughs> we, we need to sell commercials, get a budget, and hire him. No, um, because <laughs> you can see from the beginnings of OD&D, you can see them grappling with the problem. Because if, if you just have a, a wizard and a hero, like I said, that's binary. One uses swords and no spells. One uses spells and no swords. So then you get the three little races class guys who are some blending of that. And then you get clerics who can use a weapon, just not a sharp weapon and spells. And then you get to the where you were about to head. Mm-hmm. You add thieves to the game. And now here's a, a character class whose class abilities, as opposed to skills, are really skills. Yeah. Um, and they're even referred to as skills. So, which then comes into the further argument, you know, your first level thief was sent out into the world because he's ready, but can only pick pockets on a 10% chance. (laughs) He's going to die. They actually didn't like him very much at the guild. Not bad. But then, hey, you know, the magic user was sent out with the spell, you know, push or read magic, you know. If I'm interested in learning magic and I've got three hit points, I'm not leaving the damn... (laughs) Down <laughs> ever. <laughs> Stay away from anything green. That's right. <laughs> yeah. World's oldest magic user. <laughs> First level. <laughs> how, how much XP is staying here for my postdoc worth? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, uh, well, it depends. You got to s- rustle the snake, you know, and there, there's all that. Is but, that like some kind of hazing thing at a fret? <laughs> did you ever see that online? 
that it was apparently was elaborate FAQ explaining, you know, that uh, I'll PhD students to get their dissertation passed. They, of course, have to do the standard wrestling with a snake. Yeah. As all PhD students have to do. Have to do. And I was like, well, is it poisoned? That depends on the, pr- on the validity of your thesis, whether or not they'll get, put a poison snake in there. It's like, wait a minute. I just want a degree. Why am I having to wrestle a snake? Wrestling snakes are a time-honored tradition <laughs> of academia. And therefore, like, yeah, there's plenty of stuff that I like. Why am I doing this? Why? Because we all had to. So you have to, even though it makes zero sense. But anyway, back to skills. That is another argument that people, though, have made, is that without skills, classes are too cardboard. Fighter 1 is just like Fighter 2, which is just like Fighter 3. Well, see, uh, I mean, from an old school point of view, that's only possible if you've got two kind of lame players. And... I my first reaction to that is well no they're not the same their attributes are going to be variable you know you're going to have someone who's stronger someone who's faster someone who's smarter you know and then it's in, to me anyway it's incumbent on the player to reflect that in role playing if you really want a different character play them like a different character you don't need a, a listing to explain what they can and cannot do well, I mean, if you want to talk hardcore game mechanics, that's one of the arguments back and forth that happens all the time on skills, depending on which edition you're talking about. By the time you get to 3.5, where the skill system is so over-cumbersome, it's virtually broken. The argument starts to be, okay, well, let's do ability checks instead. But ability checks don't scale with level, where skills do. Does that make sense? True. True. Um, well, it depends on the system. You know, AD&D, especially 2E... Um, their skills don't, uh, they get more skills as they go up in level, but their skill is basically based on a attribute check. So their ability to resolve that skill doesn't go up. Now, I like what Castles and Crusades does, and that's probably going to be what I talk about in where we get into how do you handle skills. <laughs> So I'll be quiet at this point. I think they have a very good system for, you know, making sure that, you know, your skills do kind of go up with your level. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. And I also like the way a lot of the modern um, versions of D20 rules address what we're talking about. The system that I shan't mention on this podcast. I like the way they <laughs> handle it, obviously. The system that shall not be named. <laughs> Well, um, that does also make me think of, you know, I suppose one could argue that the various languages you get for a high int could theoretically be considered skills. And I've played in games where people house-ruled that instead of X number of languages, you can get X number of skills instead. And I think second edition, if I remember correctly... You know, when you're making up a character, you can use some of those skill slots to give yourself extra languages if you okay. want. Say okay. if you don't have a very high intelligence, but mm-hmm. you want to have more languages and for whatever reason. It's like, well, I've got enough skills. I don't need anything else, but I've got this, le- this slot left. You know, I'll give myself another language. I've got an intelligence of seven, but I can speak four languages. <laughs> I can speak draconic fluently. <laughs> 
this topic is so muddy and difficult to grasp because I mean it's got so many dimensions, playstyle dimension, game mechanics, mm. personal uh, preference dimension. Mike, l- let me just interview you for a second. Why don't you like skills? What's your beef? For one thing, and let me tell everyone this, I do not hate all skill systems. I like, and this is referring to AD&D, but I liked the secondary skill system, where you just have a very general thing, like Forester, which meant that you obviously know how to track, hunt, set snares, build a fire, cradling to shelter, that sort of thing makes sense to me. I think I've griped about this before, but I'm going to say it again. In the 2E game I'm playing right now, I've got an elf. She is a freaking elf. She can track. She can fire the bow with ridiculous amounts of, of fire. She has survival woods, but she can't hunt. She does not have the hunting skill. She doesn't have hunting. Which is, to me, the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of. And, but you don't run into that with the secondary skills because, like I said, they've got Forester. And it's just assumed to encompass all of that. And it's more plausible to me. See, now we've okay. got something that we could talk about because it's not either or. It's points along a continuum, which you're objecting to th- as the additions progressed, the skill system became more granular and detailed. And yes. as as that happened, you start running into problems where uh, I've got the sailing skill, but I don't have the sextant skill. How could I know to say? How could I know how to sail a boat without using a sextant? <laughs> yeah. Well, and perfect example. You know, Jonathan, the character from the two E game, he had navigation, but Chase made us leave the or had us leave the coastline, and then goes, "Oh well, did you have a sextant? No. Well, you're lost." And our gut reaction is. If he's got navigation, he should have known. He should have thought, hmm, maybe we should have had a had a sextant when we left. But again, this is a case where the player doesn't know enough about sailing to know that they need to ask the DM about buying a sextant, but their character who had that skill would have known and so would have gone out and bought a sextant. This is this is the essence of why skill systems drive me bananas because everything you're talking about your entire game bogged down to have that discussion, and I I it's personal playstyle preference. I'm much more interested in the dialogue between uh, DM and player. I mean, if you can convince me of something, I might like might let you make a roll to try and do all kinds of crazy things. If you just oh. talk me into it, more DM DM fiat. I, you know, I guess I'm just saying the old rulings, not rules. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or the comment of, you know, Steve Chenault of Trollor Games when he was asked, how do you resolve someone swimming across a river? And he basically said, well, I roll a die behind the shield to make people think I rolled something. If it uh, is important to the plot that they swim across the river, then they do. Yeah. If it's important to the plot that they don't, they don't. And, and that's, okay, that's another argument I in DCC terms, if you've burned your luck down to three, you sank. You roll, <laughs> roll whatever you want to roll. <laughs> but And that's – oh, crap. It slipped out of my mind. Y'all talk about something while I try to think of it. Oh, sorry, man. I derailed you. Monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> Monkey skills. <laughs> I would like to take the brachiating skill. 
take a thousand monkeys and put them in a room with typewriters until they create uh, an adventure module. Okay, I got it. Hooray! The pro- another problem I have with skills is that frequently, and I know this is more of an argument of a quality DM or lack thereof, but it seems like there is never a consensus on when a skill check is appropriate. You know, I have horse riding. Okay, you get on your horse, make your horse riding check. I'm just walking my horse down the street of the town. Well, you're going to need to make your check. You know, I'm unwinding a present. Make your rope use. You know what I mean? We've all had those DMs that do these checks. This is what's beautiful about this discussion. Now we've gotten to something I'm really genuinely interested in. Because if you want to play skill in (laughs) 3.5, I I, I don't care. (laughs) But I didn't mean that. But okay. In the play test last night, I'd written the scenario where the players had to climb up a vine-encrusted building 100 feet. And it made perfect sense to me when I was writing it that that would be three agility checks stacked that got increasingly harder the higher up you went. And I, and I, and I adjusted the numbers to where I thought it was in, you know, I'm calculating the success range because I don't want to kill everybody, but a couple of them should fall off. When we actually played it out, it, there were, uh, I mean, because it was a funnel, everybody had three characters. That was like 21 PCs trying to climb this thing, making three sets of agility checks, and then everything that happened when they missed. You know, okay, some of them were tied together, so here's a strength check. It was so much dice rolling instead of role playing that I went, okay, I got to rewrite this because this is not fun. And in the grand scheme of things, does it matter? Is it going to unbalance the scenario toward the players if you just say, okay, if they try, they make it up? You grew, you grew up in a hothouse jungle. You know how to climb vines. Up you go. Don't roll a one. Yeah, up you go. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Or even, like you say, don't roll a one. Otherwise, you're good. Uh, also, you have to be careful. Is this something that is vital to continuing on in the adventure? Because do you really want your players to all fail their check for something that if they can't succeed, the adventure stops? You know, okay, we're done. <laughs> oh, right. The, class, the, the classic dungeon door nobody can get through, and so the adventure's over. Right. Yeah. You know, it's like you've you got to make sure that you're not, you know, boxing yourself in with something like that. It's like, and if everybody manages to fail, and it will happen, it's like, okay, what do we do now? It's like, well, let's have a picnic. Like well, I was talking about the first game I ran for Kyle and Randall. I, I did that rookie mistake about the only way to continue on is through the secret door, but nobody can find the secret door. Um. <laughs> yeah, it may, it, you may call it a rookie mistake, but I forget and still do it sometimes. But yeah, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Because um, as soon as you start writing things and plugging the skill, uh, a certain skill set uh, rules mechanic into it, you've got to consider the, what the outcomes could be. Is there any interest in doing a comparison and contrast between D&D and Call of Cthulhu? Sure. I mean, I've, I, I have to admit, I only played one session, but Michael Curtis ran it. So here's a master GM running Call of Cthulhu. And it mm-hmm. was uh, a lot of the problems we talked about, skill-based things, weren't happening in Call of Cthulhu. I didn't experience them because the game mechanics were built for a skill system. Whereas D&D, it's been this gradual process of patching various different skill systems into a hybrid game mechanic that wasn't designed to support it in the first place. Yeah. And I think if you're going to get, I mean, for instance, 
traveler. Traveler's system is based on skills. I have no problem with that. Call of Cthulhu, like you said, skill system. But I just don't know that class systems... To me, that's the whole point of having a class. It's a skill set that overcome. You know, that's your profession. That's what you do. And Nobody complains about thief abilities because that's a class ability. Right. Because without it, they're just, you know, a fighter with lower hit die. Um, Worse armor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've never been able to understand how you're running around as an adventurer. Yeah, you started with these proficiencies, but now you've been a fighter. You've spent the past until you level up as a fighter. But now you get extra proficiencies, so he has heraldry now. What? Did anyone else in the group have heraldry? No. Well, then how did he just spontaneously learn heraldry? Has he been running around with a book of Fox Davies? It's a bi-mail correspondence course. (laughs) Yeah. It's not plausible. See, I'm I'm bad as a DM for hand wave and stuff like that, as long as it doesn't violate the verisimilitude of the campaign setting. Yeah. If it's plausible, for instance, I think people in a medieval world, most all of them should be able to make a fire. You know, spell components, I see no reason to put that into a game. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I used to like them when I was younger, but now it's just kind of, I just assume... You spend a little money, that's your spell components, you're good for a month. You know, I don't want it. Well, but do you have the eyes of the newt? Well, <laughs> I got tail of newt, but they're out of eyes. They had to buy one, get one free, and it, they cleaned them out. You know, it's, no thanks. I mean, you know, with some exceptions. Raising somebody from the dead, okay, you should spend the money on a 10 grand diamond or so, whatever yeah, it is. Yeah, or identify, you know, if you're going to do like AD&Ds, identify and do the pearl yeah, that sort of thing. If the spell has something in its write-up that specifically says you need blah, you know, that because in the end, as DMs, we know what that's really there for. It's a gold sink. Right, we're, and, and we're appropriate and prudent. That's a good idea. But, you know, like, uh, Liz, the internet meme that goes around that, that's two panels, how every D&D party starts and how they end up, and the first picture is the... Fellowship of the Ring from the Peter Jackson movies, and the second picture is the uh, Monty Python, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's what I often see these kind of game mechanics do to the players. When what we're all sitting down at the table to do is have a heroic adventure and have mm. fun, right? Right. So if I turn it into a, a set of skill checks where you're just you know run away, run away, <laughs> and this gets me back to secondary skills because the whole point of a secondary skill was this is what you did. Before becoming an adventurer, you know, it's not going to increase. Well, why would it? You're not a forester anymore, or you're not a fisherman. You're a fighter, magic user, cleric, thief, fill in the blank, an elven lumberjack. You know, it's, it's <laughs> stuff you may have done before you became an adventurer, but you're not going to improve in it necessarily. Oh, now, you right, are going to improve. It's not your being class anymore. Right. You are going to improve being a fighter because that's what you're doing now. Right, right. So, that's that's my argument. Maybe we've talked our way around into the ultimate answer. I, I love it when that happens because, Traveler, you don't really have experience point progression, do you? It's been a long time nope. since I played. Okay. Yeah, no, there's no classes. You have careers, but what a career is is basically what slot 
you can or basically the group of skills that you're going to get depending on what you roll. And the whole premise of Call of Cthulhu is you're a bunch of investigators in way over your head who are mostly going to go insane and die in anyway. Yeah, so, your hit points don't change. Your sanity might change. Well, almost certainly will change. <laughs> and You'll not lose for the better. <laughs> might gain a little bit, but on the whole, you know, that's more or less where you are. So maybe we're not just talking about skill or not skill set in terms of play style and game mechanics, but uh, or hybrid game mechanics, but maybe even genre of role-playing game. It works better in some genres than it does in there's, others. Yeah, there's a science fiction RPG out called Stars Without Number that I have heard is based on classic D&D. But I've never read it to see, you know, is it just use some of the generic mechanics or is it a class system? And if so, how would that work in a sci-fi system? Does it work to have classes or, you know, is that more of a situation where you do need a skills system? Man, this just turned into a how to write game mechanics workshop. I love it. Because that's a le- I haven't read uh, Stars Without Numbers. It was an old game, but that's a very interesting question you're asking because what makes post apocalyptic games like Game World and Metamorphosis Alpha so easy is the particular, it's really science fantasy, but the particular flavor of science fiction does kind of lend itself to the D&D mechanic. Top Secret did both, it had a class system and the skill system. But it's been so long since I've looked at it, I can't give you any details about it. I just remember it had both. I don't I suppose you remember, of, Liz. There were a lot, your skills were percentage-based, like in Call of Cthulhu. Um, anywhere between, you know, 1% to 100% in something. I don't remember how you made your characters, though, as far as, you know, having a set number of points that you could put into things or whatever. And it's then been, maybe every level you could add, you know, kind of like the second edition thief thing. Yeah, I just, it's been years and years and years, but I remember when I first got Top Secret and I spent hours building NPC characters. All I remember is that, you know, yes, there were skills and they were percentage-based, but I couldn't, I couldn't tell you anymore, you know. Okay. Well, how, how I got the numbers. It was a game that did both, but we can't really deal with that. Hang on a second. We've got the game in our closet. I'll go look. <laughs> <laughs> Although, since we are talking classic D&D, they did introduce a mastery system, at least with weapons, in the master's box set for Menser Beckme. Oh, it's and been so long since I read that. Did did those rules you're talking about make it to the RC? Yes. Okay. It also kind of kind of folded into two E too because you had the mastery, the double mastery, and all that other stuff, double specialization, that sort of stuff. I looked at their system. Some of it is interesting. Um, unlike say first edition and others, where if you're not skilled with a weapon. You take like a minus four or something to attack. In the master box set, doesn't limit your ability to attack. But if you're not skilled with a weapon, you can't do more than half damage. That's interesting. Which I kind of like actually better than, than the other argument. It's also a little clunky, I think, in that you, you can even 
force morale checks on your enemy by using your mastery in combat. I guess because you're just so awesome with your weapon, you know, you do the doing the Indiana Jones. Jones. Woof, 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 woof. Yeah, the two saber, <laughs> yeah, scimitars. Ha ha. <laughs> Pow. Pow. Yeah, and so <laughs> magic missiles you in the chest, but <laughs> It's interesting because a lot of the, like in the 80s, a lot of the responses to D&D involved lots of what we're talking about because people objected to some of the things that you and I might consider sacrosanct, but they're basically uh, flaws in the design of D&D. The idea that because I've studied uh, spell use, I can't even pick up a longsword now. You know, that's a rule in D&D, but it doesn't make any sense. and. I'm not sure I can pick up a longsword and hit someone with it. I might not do much, like a, which is why I like this half damage thing because that kind of reflects it. You know, I'm a smart wizard. I've got a high dex. Why can't I at least try and sneak behind this guy and stab him with my dagger? That it does compensate for that, though it does make me think of Gnarly Bones Monopoly comparison. (laughs) I mean, why? Huh? Well, I just feel like it's important to admit to the things that we we may take for granted, and lots of people who listen to podcasts may take for granted that are actually you know quirks of D and D. Yeah, and that's sometimes we, we I, were I, we were just talking about it yesterday at the game store. What uh, I was explaining to them what you had to do in first edition AD and D to become a bard, and and <laughs> the, and the Pathfinder players were going what? <laughs> yeah, which is why almost nobody had bards, but um. Well, first you go to Votech school for a couple of years. Then you have to go and sign up for an advanced degree at this school. Yeah. <laughs> then you got to leave this class and start a new class until you get to this class. And then you can think about becoming a bard if you've got the attribute. Ah! I like the strategic review bard. It's a lot easier. But uh, And I wonder about that sometimes, you know, that is my dislike of skills in D&D based on game mechanics. I think it is, but there are moments I think, you know, or is it just, damn it, it didn't have skills when I started playing it, so why does it need it now? It's got to, it's got to be some of both for all of us. I mean, everybody imprints on the very first thing they're exposed to. Liz, what's the best version of D&D ever? Well, Holmes, naturally. I, I, cl- I close my case. <laughs> yeah, The defense rests. Defense rests, yep. Because, I mean, at almost at the same time of playing uh, D&D, I started playing Traveler. And, of course, Traveler has tons of skills. So, you know, is it just because, well, now science fiction feels like it has to have skills because I imprinted on Traveler? Or is it more of we, in a, any type of modern-esque type setting, modern or sci-fi, since we are a society built on specialization – Skills make more sense. Well, that's a valid point because in one way or another, to one degree or another, all of these different games and rule sets are trying to simulate a reality. And sometimes that's genre medieval fantasy. Sometimes that's Star Trek. Okay, Star Trek is hard. I've never played a, a Star Trek role-playing game that I enjoyed because the specific, specific – I can't say the word. Somebody say it for me. Specific. The, yeah, the specificity of that setting does not... Specificity. Let, oh, okay. There you go. I clearly, I clearly didn't take enough points in pronunciation. Um, <laughs> you know, doesn't adapt to a people gathering around a table and playing a role-playing game as well as Lord of the Rings or Appendix Inlet yeah. does. And there are things that 
you know, the cinematic style of play or, you know, especially superhero games. You know, the game there, are they trying to be realistic? A little, but for the most part, they're trying to be faithful to their genre. And that counts for more than does it make sense that, say, a magic user can't wear plate armor? Well, by that logic, then, some gaming genres would then inherently lend themselves to skill skill system game mechanics more than others. Mm-hmm. And I think sci-fi is one of those. Or modern. My game, Victorious, has a skill system. It's more like secondary skills, but it ha- does have a skill system. I mean, here would be a challenge. Build me a character that functions like Legolas in Champions. How many points are you going to spend? have to spend? A thousand? <laughs> <laughs> At least 300, I would think. And, yeah, that would be a pain. And also, that's another thing. You know, D&D, the whole basis of it is you start what amounts to being unskilled, and you work your way up to being skilled. That's part of the progression of the game. Games like Champions or others are arguably front-loaded. Right. And, and, you know, for instance, Traveler, you can learn skills during play, but it's very hard. 90% 90% of all your skills you're getting for the beginning of the game. With your character creation. Yep. Assuming you don't die. Yep. And then, and then you're, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. Or you're too old. Because you can also start, you know, my character is starting play at 58 years old. You know, there's no 18-year-old naked with a bag of gold standing in the middle of a tavern, you know, sort of beginning like in D&D or a lot of fantasy RPGs. First edition Gamma World and Metamorphosis Alpha, you're you're born with as many hit points as you're ever going to have, and there are no skills. So your your level progression in that game is all loot. Yeah, that that's how you improve. That and pure strength humans can take like six arrows to the chest before they die, which has always struck me as kind of weird. But anyway, you know, we planned. The, now let me be clear: we planned this episode months in advance, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. By coincidence, RFI started talking skills in their last episode. And oh, so we are not it. we're not ripping them off. But I listened to their episode before the show and something that Vince did that I think kind of has merit is he refused to refer to thief skills as skills in their class abilities. I mean it's semantics, but he's essentially correct. Yeah. And I think that make if there was some way to do that, we could clarify the argument a lot better, you know, because Rangers track. Well, yes, that's a class ability. That's like the word level in O D and D. You skill means both things, but they're different meanings. Mm-hmm. Thief skills is not skills. Yeah. Because one, you know, all thieves get it to a greater or lesser ability, and two, other classes don't get it. Which leads us to our own skill systems. When we have used them, what have we done? Basically, I used to do the attribute check with them. But I have recently, in my past two D&D games I've run, I have tried the number of D6 check rather than a D20 for an attribute check. Wait, what? Yeah, instead of rolling a D20 against your attribute... You roll 3d6 against your app attribute as the base. Oh, that's a gym work with it mechanic. Becoming, yeah, with it becoming more difficult, adding dice. 
you know, four, well, this is pretty hard, so it's 4d6 or 5d6 or even 2d6 because it's just incredibly simple. Though I think if you're going to do that, you might as well just say they do it because it never hurts the game to let them do something. And because of the bell curve, that actually works better. Because, I mean, if you have an 18 decks, you're like, you know, unless I roll a 19 or a 20, I got it. But if you're doing something very hard and you're rolling 5d6, well, you might uh, might not. You've got a significant chance of not making it. On the other hand, thanks to the bell curve, you're more likely to make it because of the mean average of what the dice roll rather than a d20, which you have a 5% chance of reaching of any result 1 through 20. That's very interesting. So I have been playing that, and I've been liking it a lot. Just decide where you want that bell curve hump to sit. and Yeah, you're good to go. What about you, Liz? Well, as I started to mention earlier, um, generally I'm still quite happy with the castles and crusades, um, you know, doing attribute checks as opposed to having people have a specific skill. So, say, if this player does want to make a stirring speech, but the player themselves is not, you know, particularly verbally inclined, you know, then it's like, okay, well, make an attribute check, you know, based on your charisma and Castles and Crusades has where you would have your level added or subtracted rather depending on you know whether you're wanting to get the higher but you know but higher is always better in yeah. CNC so you would add your your level and so as you get more advanced in level you know then your skills do improve and when you build your character you choose primary attributes Right, and that also helps you to make sure you're going to be more likely to make your attribute checks in certain areas, depending on how you see your character, you know, being particularly skilled in. And I think that's another good way of making sure that your character is not a quote-unquote cookie-cutter fighter or magic user or whatever, because you can have that fighter A have as one of their primes, you know, Strength is usually the the standard go-to. It's like, well, I'm playing a fighter. I want my prime to be strength. You know, but what if you want to have a fighter who, say, beforehand, you know, for several years, he or she was thinking, you know, I think I really want to go into the local clergy. But, you know, something happened and they decided, you know, being a cleric was really not what they were going to do after all, and they just became a fighter. But because of all those years of study and et cetera, et cetera, you know, wisdom's their prime. And so it's a way to make one fighter different from another fighter without having to say, if I don't have feats or skills or whatever you want to call them, you know, all fighters are the same. Well, they're not. And it's a way of having a skill system without... A real skill system. It's like, well, my character is really skilled at public oration and acting. Okay, well, make your charisma a prime. And so instead, you'll have to meet a base of 12 instead of a base of 18, mm-hmm. like all of your other roles would be. And even better, if you're doing something that's the purview of another class, like a fighter with a prime dex wanting to pick pockets, you can do it, but you don't get to add your level. Because that's another class ability. So it fixes that eternal problem of 
well, you can't even try to do something. Attribute checks don't, don't scale because your attributes don't generally change. Right. So, I mean, with your attribute check, if you're doing something that makes sense for your class, you can add your level. But See, if I, it's nothing to do with what your class is about, you would not necessarily add your level. But if you wanted to make sure you were good at that anyway, you could make whatever that attribute is your prime so you have a lower target number to reach. I love that because that's basically how spell checks work in DCC. It's it's a it's D20, D20 plus your level. Uh, although as you start to go up level, sometimes the D20 graduates at some point to more than one D20 <laughs> for like two actions around or a D24 because they have the crazy dice. But the but the idea of adding your level, I really like. It's an yep. easy easy solution to scaling it. And it's up to the DM to basically say whether or not this is an appropriate situation for the level to be added in or not. It's it's a pretty good little system, hmm. and it it doesn't uh, bog you down with extensive sp- skill lists because you're really just linking it to an attribute and going from there. So that's me. That's you. That's me. You can keep your multiple d6s. <laughs> Over to you, Jim. I, I was just waiting to be asked. Um, I <laughs> Part of me feels like I should just recuse myself from res- all response because I just don't use skill systems, period. And if, they, if they're written into the version of the game I'm playing, I ignore them. I, uh, I just do the very old school thing of if it's something I'm deciding in advance when I'm writing an adventure or it's on the spot, I just calculate a rough percentage chance of success, establish a DC, and let them roll an attribute check to beat it or not and award bonuses depending on things they're telling me they're trying to, you know, finesse with. And, Situational and, modifiers. Yeah, yeah. Because okay. uh, it's just, I mean, I just it's just my old school training. I mean, Tim Cass takes that to an extreme that he's almost got his own game mechanic. Tim doesn't really run OD&D. When you have a wizard with Fireball in Tim's OD&D game, you roll a d20, and he rolls something behind the screen, and he somehow uses those two numbers to decide whether or not your fireball hit and how much damage it did. I've never rolled fireball damage on Tim's OD&D game. Now that sounds insane and people, 99% of us would freak out, but when Tim runs a game, it works. Okay. So, not that extreme, but just like, okay, I want to um, do a backflip somersault and land on that ledge. Okay. Uh, in my head, I'm like, that's going to be hard. About 18. Okay. Make an agility check. I've got spring shoes. Okay, give yourself a plus two. Mm-hmm. Done. Well, another old school thing, I don't know if any of you have tried it before, but it mentions in some of the early modules, you know, there was no flat resolution assumption back then of attribute checks. There so, were some attribute checks. but Saving were, throw. Uh, as a Saving throws, yeah. yes. Yeah, you're right. Have, have any of you tried those as a skill system? I have not. I mean... Not since 1981, I've... but we did it then. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if the module tells you make a save versus breath weapon, and that tells yeah, if you... Yeah, if the module tells me to, then I probably would have. But as far as using it as a generic system, you know, across the board, it just... It never seemed particularly intuitive to me. Yeah, although one could argue it does scale to level... I don't know. Maybe I'm I'm selling the TSR guys short, but a lot of those saving throw numbers seem to me just 
random? arbitrary. Yeah, <laughs> random and arbitrary. I mean, you know, yeah, magic users save a little better against magic, fighters against, you know, paralyzation or whatever. But, yeah, um, to a degree, it just seems random. I don't, I've had I'm, it verified by some of the TSR guys have told me, yeah, we just threw whatever sounded good, you know? Really? Because I would have been dead certain there was an obvious math behind it. Well, a couple of guys told me um, that basically it. it was just, you know, sounded good. So we put that there. And I'm sure there was a general idea, like I said, you know, with magic users and so on and so forth. But, yeah, generally, I've never tried it. I've known some people that have tried it. They either love it or hate it. Um, if anybody listening has tried it, write it in, write us in and let us know how it worked for you. And we'll read the email three months later. <laughs> At least. <laughs> well, you know, like if we're playing Mike Battelotto's B1 game and suddenly I have to make specific saving throws for my character sheet, f- whether it's paralyzation or petrification or dragon breath, I don't care because that's just the way that game's written. But I don't think anybody could argue game mechanics-wise that will save, fort save, and reflex save based on attributes doesn't work, isn't a cleaner system. And you could use those for... Some skill checks. Yeah, yeah. Alrighty. Well, any last comments before we go into products? Let's head in. In new Dungeons and Dragons, power is won by finding new ways to battle. I can feel the darkness inside me. And being completely dragon flapping awesome. Set comes with spellbook, ritual rites, playboard. Sacrificial dagger and dice, dice, dice. TSR Hobbies, Dungeons and Dragons games, products of your imagination. Oye. Oh, I just thought it, maybe... it just—it just sounds weird, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I was still recovering from the last segment. I thought I went too pedantic. Oh, okay. <laughs> products of your imagination. We are talking about a module that's been out by Small Niche Games probably for long enough that Pete Spawn was going, when are they going to talk about it? Well, we're finally talking about it. The Shrine of St. Alina, which is a homage to the Menser Redbox set of Basic D&D, where the solo adventure in there involves a cleric named Alina and her dying to help fight the evil Magic user Bargle. <laughs> and it does and, indeed have a red cover. Yes. Yeah. And that's why he turned evil. Not many people know this. He was named Bargle. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, module. First thoughts. Liz. I thought it was cool. Um, I, I did have to go back and look over the Mincer. Um, you know, the beginning, how to play Dungeons and Dragons, read the story again, mm-hmm. to really get the full effect of the bits and pieces that he was riffing off of when he created this. But I, I think it's a good little adventure, and you don't even have to be familiar with the story or Alina. I mean, it gives it a nice added layer of, ah, oh, I see what you did there. But even w- totally without that, I think it's good. I knew you'd love this because it was three for three on my DM Liz likes things checklist. 
Uh-huh. It's like, yeah, they got okay. room table. table. check. Kobolds, <laughs> check. Save or die mechanics, check. Yep. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I wonder if this, he was thinking specifically about us when he wrote it, because, yeah, it, it covers all three favorite things. These are a few of my favorite things. <laughs> well, Jim? Oh, I I loved it. I mean, it had me in the first, uh, or technically second paragraph, where it says, in true old-school fashion, a number of the encounters yes. involve save-or-die type mechanics. The Labyrinth Lord is free to alter these effects for groups who prefer less random mortality. <laughs> and if you're wussy. Yeah, if you're too wussy to play this, you don't have to play it this way. Wahaha. But, uh, well. I mean, bang for the buck, you can't argue with this, because the whole front of half of the adventure is just random encounters. Like the first four pages are random encounters you could drop in anywhere. Yeah, you could have. I mean, I mean, unless you you're going to put your players through, through all twenty of these random encounters before they get to the dungeon, save them for later. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I was kind of surprised, you know, that there was such a high level of wilderness encounters as opposed to encounters actually at the shrine. Um. I mean, that's what makes it like uh, Mensa Redbox to me is like, it's real how-to. Because everybody does. At some point, you're like, okay, they've got to go from A to B. What do I do with them in between in the, in the woods? Well, here you go. Here's four mm-hmm. pages of what to do with them. And I mean, if you think about it, you're almost certainly not going to run into even half of these things. Because you roll the 1d6, and if you don't roll a 1 or a 2, there's no random encounter. So... Unless your party gets lost and just yeah. wanders around. <laughs> or your DM is a bastard because he does say the Labyrinth Lord can choose an encounter. And it's like, I'm going to give them a random encounter no matter what I rolled. <laughs> but I really, really like this because I have my little, I have my own, there's a DM list checklist and then there's the DM gym checklist. I have my little checklist, checklist of pet peeves in these third-party uh, products that we often review. And, I mean, the columns are justified type. The type is nice and big on plain white backgrounds. The adventure is just um, bread and butter D&D adventuring. No tower um, in the background. <laughs> oh, yeah, no watermark. I mean, the, the layout is great. Uh, I want to name-check the artist because the spot art was so good it's a cut above the normal kind of art we find in these things um Mm -hmm. luigi castellana lanny i'm sure i murdered that (laughs) i got the luigi right part i mean really nice spot art through the whole thing Mm -hmm. before you even get to how cool the adventure is and while it's an like liz was saying while it's an homage to the mincer set again you don't have to know anything about it to play this adventure and get enjoyment out of it um, though it did bug me how he kept referring to over and over, what was it, the notorious one? The or infamous s- one. The infamous one over and over again. And that that got old, but I know I know he couldn't call him Bargle. <laughs> <laughs> it's better than getting an infamous C and D from Watsy. <laughs> That's true. That's and, true. And besides, you know, I figure it's like the movie Hoodwinked. It's like and Bargle, change your name. It's not scary, and I don't like saying it. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, here comes Bargle. Bargle. <laughs> Look out, it's Bargle. Bargle. You know, it's like, fine. I mean, not as bad as Keith, but... 
Yeah, bow before Bargle just doesn't work the same as Zod. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Although I must although say, although it's very alliterative. <laughs> Mike was um, playing part of the of the adventure on his um, reader. You know, he had it converted and it made it into MP3s. Well, his screen reading software, whenever it said the infamous one. The way it would pronounce it, half the time it sounded to me like they were saying the infamous Juan. It's like Juan, you know? the UAN. Yeah. So, <laughs> no one knows what the name of the infamous Juan is. Well, da, da, da. Yes, we do. It's Juan. You know? He's an all black and has a mariachi band. Da, da, da. But yeah, infamous one. Okay, good art. Um, I personally, on the whole, I liked it. I there were a couple of things in there that I felt were a little odd. Um, for instance, I'm not really sure how water flowing from the tear ducts of a 30 foot tall statue can create a huge waterfall. It's magic, Mike. Yeah, well. <laughs> um, I did like how there are specific encounters set up in the wilderness to provide characters. For someone who's either had a character that died or that, you know, need you need a thief or you need a magic user. You you could potentially run into NPCs that will handle this for your party. Or they're there to be murdered. Or they're to be murdered. And those kobolds rocked as far as all the they were all awesome. the various traps and everything, you know, which is what kobolds are all about. Yeah, that's how you write kobolds. Sneaky yes. and all kinds of stuff rigged up. Like Ewoks. Right. Kobolds yeah. are the Ewoks of D&D. They should kick your ass. Yeah, yes. they look all cute and everything, but <laughs> they will mess you up. Yes, it's amazing how many people forget in Return of the Jedi that Ewoks were going to eat Han and Luke and them. That's not very cute. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, that was a minor. And you know, I liked the, the, the overall feel of it. It was The shrine was a decent set of encounters without feeling like it's you know this huge warren of of complex that you can get lost in no i mean two session module i mean a session a session to get there and get started and one session through the dungeon yeah tops which is really good in 2015 because those of us our age don't have as much time to game we can't stay up you know 12 straight hours and run a game all weekend long you know, just have everybody over. Yeah, that that doesn't work. I mean, we probably could if we absolutely had to, but I prefer not to. <laughs> All right. Well, anything else? How were the maps? The map was... Um, see, I'm so spoiled by Doug Kovacs. I mean, the map is fine. If it was like on Blueprint, it would look dead like TSR maps from... Module maps from the day. Okay. And I also liked the inclusion of... There's this one page that is nothing but a drawing of the bluff where you can see the statue of St. Alina at the top of the mountain, et cetera, et cetera. Like a player and, handout. Yeah, like a little player handout. And so when you get there, you know, you can show that to the group around the table. It's like, this is what you see. And I think that's that was a really cool addition to have. The picture really is worth a thousand words. Yeah, you know, rather than trying to spend a lot of time describing, you know, this is where you are, this is where this is in relation to you, and blah, blah, blah. It's like... Here it all is. <laughs> and I meant I liked the idea of 
a saint or other religious figure whose whole basis is the encouragement of adventurers. We don't see that much. It was very nice. And again, which I think this is cool, but also has rival adventuring groups, which again is something, as we've said before on the show, you don't see much. Back when men could be monsters too, indeed. <laughs> yeah. When that, when that kindly old man is listed as a monster. I love the one guy, like, right in the front door, there's a, 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 one of the Holy Order monks who's been so corrupted, he just attacks everybody. So you step one foot in, bam, he attacks you, and then, he, and then he's written where he just drops his mace and collapses and apologizes for attacking you. That's so old really school. Sorry. <laughs> and that happens a couple of times in that adventure, you know, <laughs> which is pretty cool. And you've even got a sort of a Monty Python-esque <laughs> encounter at one point. <laughs> Come at me, coward! <laughs> Liz, take a shot at pronouncing the artist's name. You'll do it better than me, because I'm, I'm not done singing his praises. Okay, hang on. Let me get back to the, well, to the front page. Well, I'll go ahead and say one thing I did not like about the rumor table. Hmm. They were all true. Yeah, I would have sprinkled a couple of false ones. Yeah, that's part of the fun of a rumor table is having some occasional odd ones or just flat wrong ones. I didn't even think of that. Yeah, Yeah, that's something Liz and I both kind of caught as we were listening to the the adventure. It's like none of these rumors have a a false in parentheses at the end of them. It's like all true. I don't know that I care for that. Yeah. Okay, two two and a half checks from three then. (laughs) But it'd be easy enough to switch one of those around to make it false if you wanted to. So, yeah. not a deal breaker. Oh, well, hang on. You said there weren't any false ones, isn't there? Wasn't there? I'm, I'm trying to remember. I read this a, a few weeks ago. Isn't there one about a dragon took over the shine? Well, it doesn't, but none of them say that they're false. There's yeah, there was no nothing truer, there, there is to no say TRF. at the end of each one. Oh, so the objection is some of them are false, you just don't know which It doesn't... Specify. Yeah. So it's like the the at least the PDF we have, you know, and there it may have been, you know, it may have been changed since we got this one to, you know, so, you know, Pete and I have gone over it and gone, oh crap, none of these say the false ones, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But yeah, you know, number ten, a red dragon is in control. You know, it's like yeah, you don't run into a dragon. Spoiler alert. <laughs> but, <laughs> but um. But yeah, there's or nothing, do you? But false. There's nothing, but there's nothing there that says that rumor is false. So you, as the DM, do not know. And so, but you will have to make a save or die. Yeah. <laughs> and the dragon breathes. Ha ha ha! Because that's our bag, baby. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, have some have some true and falses at the ends of each. Mm-hmm. One. Okay. The artist's name is Luigi Castellani. Castellani. That's how I, that's how I pr- would pronounce it. It it seems it, it's it seems Italian. I, I, mean, I would I would say Castellani. Well, you're the Italian one here, so we'll we'll listen to your statement. Or Italianish. Yeah, I can <laughs> I can say your maiden name because I went to school with some Gaglianis. Um, <laughs> the art uh, there's there's a uh, uh, like a monster manual shot of the spawn of the infamous in the back of this thing that is as good as any art TSR put in anything like in the all through the eighties. I mean, it's the, the description, of the infamous one, you know, you get that it's kind of this black 
evil demon-looking figure, and on its spell list is Magic Missile, Ho-Hum. And then Luigi kicks off this illustration where it's a beautiful demon who's hold, doing the Doctor Strange you know, spell-casting mm-hmm. pose, and there are little luminescent arrows firing at the viewer from his hand. It's just gorgeous. Yeah, I mean, the artwork is really nice. Um, the Keep paying that guy. Oh, yeah. You know, that one, there's a drawing of a Medusa, you know, which I think is very well done. And also a giant snake, which is another nod to the opening adventure in the Mincer. There's a giant rattlesnake that you're going through in the How to Play Dungeons and Dragons. And then you find there's another giant rattlesnake in this one. (laughs) And just like in the Mincer you know, opening text, you know, again, it's exactly 10 feet long. And it's like, this is cool. Yep. <laughs> 10 foot long giant rattlesnake. <laughs> All right. Well, are we ready for dragons then? Oh, sure. Then we'll start with you. Oh, okay. I will give this, hmm, I will give this 3.5 dragons. I'd give it four if there had been the thing with the rumor table. You know, which ones are true and which ones are false. Yeah. Okay. Jim? God, it's been so long since we recorded the last podcast. Is our scale 1 to 5 or 1 to 4? 1 to 5. And you went 3.5, Liz? Really? I, I went 3.5. Like I said, it would have been 4 out of 5 if it hadn't been for the other thing. But I just, I, I guess I feel like the easy podcaster. I, was, I, I would have given it 5, and I'm just knocking it down to 4.5 because... I'm so spoiled by DCC. I just want a little more appendix in funk in my stuff. This is this is it's it's a great adventure. It's really solid, really well constructed. I just wanted a little more weirdness in it. So 4.5, which is still Well, I'm going to go with 3.5 cuz again, it's a good module and there's nothing wrong with the 3 rating, by the way. 3.5 is above average. And with me, it was a little of the rumor table, but it was a lo- little more of, I think there could have been a bit more adventure in the shrine itself and still played out well. Though I will uh, attest that the wilderness encounters have more variety of uses as far as whether in this adventure or not. But I think this is a good, especially for the low price of it getting it as a PDF, I think uh, this is definitely above average. I've never done this before. I'm going to challenge your two's ratings. I, th- I think they are unfairly low. And since you brought up the price, it is normally four ninety five for the PDF and seven ninety five for the soft cover. But right now on Drive Through RPG or RPG Now's rather, you can get both for seven ninety five. That's a hell of a deal for what you're getting yeah. in this. Okay, I will raise mine to four, just so, just because you have rebuked me. <laughs> <laughs> that and it turns it into an even four average. So, so buy a copy today. And small niche, Pete, you need to write a crappy adventure so that we can pan it on our show and not look like small niche games fan fanboys and girls. I I think Pete knows what he's doing. I got no problem with it. Yeah. But it's like we're always covering his stuff, and they're always good. <laughs> you bastard! How dare you? <laughs> you bastard, yes! All righty. Well, then, 
That leaves us to wandering the desert road through the wilderness on our way to the horizon, maybe to the Shrine of St. Helena. Who knows? And how are you heading down the road, Jim? Uh, I'm at the Shrine of St. Helena, and because my character's alignment is neutral, I'm just walking through every door with neither a baneful or beneficial effect happening to me. (laughs) Because neutral is the alignment of choice. (laughs) Ha-ha! Liz? Well, I'm going down that lonely road with a bunch of kobolds, and we're setting traps and snares along the way to keep people from following us. Oh, man. You're going to maybe trap me and my corrupted rust monster, (laughs) who I'm leading in front of me with a metal pot. I forgot about the rust monster. That's why Liz (laughs) dropped it to 3.5. It's rust monster PTSD. Ah, darn those rust monsters. A corrupted rust monster, not just a rust monster. Oh, I got to say, and I should have said this before, but there is a curse on the temple. And instead of just the regular, you know, oh, there's an evil aura, you can tell that this is, you know, cursed ground. This curse actually has physical effects that you can see as you're going through the adventure. And I thought that was really cool and something that a lot of adventures just don't do. I thought of you, Mike, when I was reading it, because you always, when we play play together, you always like to gut things to see if they have jewels in their guts. And there's no no doing that in this adventure, because once you kill everything here, it collapses into a black ooze puddle. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Make it a one. No (laughs) All righty, folks. Well... We'll see everybody in Ep 104. See ya! Briark! And we're out! Productions in association with D20Radio.com. The Sacred Eye theme music is provided by the band Mississippi Bones. You can find them at MississippiBones.BandCamp.com. Curses and their side effects in the Shrine of St. Alina were furnished by Botany 500. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Save or Die. But, uh... Yeah, I mean, and one of the arguments, he, he brings up the inherent contradiction of, you know, the religious right says D&D is bad because, one, it's not in the real world. It's an imaginary world, and they need to live in the real world, and they're summoning demons. So, basically, the 17th century argument against uh, theater. Yeah, but it's like, well, wait a minute. They're either not in the real world... Or they're summoning demons in the real world. Which is it? You know, they can't be both. How about I summon my fist in your teeth? (laughs) (laughs) You're too stupid to pass your genes on. (laughs) Pretty much.